Ever wondered what it's like to be a ranger in Denali National Park? Or hear about the park from someone who lived there for 15 years? That is what we're doing today. Welcome to the Alaska Uncovered podcast with me, your host, Jenny Twing Flaming. My occasional co-host and full-time husband, Jay and I bring you accurate, helpful, and entertaining information about Alaska travel and life in Alaska. Our guests today are Tom and Donna Habecker. Tom and Donna are originally from Pennsylvania, but have lived all over the country while Tom was working as a ranger for the National Park Service. They're now retired and live in Bozeman, Montana, but for 15 years, they lived in Denali National Park, and that is where Jay and I met them. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Uh, Tom recently published a book, a memoir about life as a ranger in the National Park Service. It's called Send a Ranger. And so we're going to hear a little bit about some of those stories today. But if you want to hear more of Tom's story, definitely pick up that book. And the link to it is in the show notes. So Tom and Donna, welcome to Alaska Uncovered. Thank you for being here. Uh, our pleasure. Thank you. So to start off, it, I would love to have each of you answer because I'm curious if you have the same answer or different answers. So um, <laughs> Donna, maybe you first and then Tom, what is your favorite place in Denali National Park? Well, my favorite place isn't a specific place on the map. And, you know, naming your favorite place is like naming your favorite child. It just <laughs> It's hard to do, but yeah. My favorite places are those that I hike to until I'm out of sight and sound of the road. And it might be near headquarters or at Toklat or Savage. I just need to get away from the road and away from the noise. Uh, and the neat thing about Denali is these places are accessible by the bus. The transportation system is amazing. You get your ticket, yeah. you get off the bus, get on the bus, as long as it's the same kind of bus you started on. All day, um, there are very few trails, and where I would go was on the river bars where you're out in the open and you can see bears, or on ridges as you go up a hill, stay on the ridge or on a hogback, uh, or in the drainages. The, the The cool thing is to, I mean, the necessary thing I would say is to be aware for bears, make noise, and travel with other people. Uh, and be sure to get back on the road before the last bus. It's a long walk to headquarters. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Definitely. You know, having lived in three premier national parks, each is a favorite for one thing. And, and in Denali, it's the light. It has the most amazing light. There's low angle light and it's it's perfect for photographing animals or mountains or flowers or people. And given the latitude, that low angle light persists for most of the year. I mean, even in the winter when the sun doesn't show up, there's this soft lingering twilight all day. Uh, but it's a great day when the sun does hit the windows of the headquarters buildings uh, around January 15th after a six week absence. So. You know, those are my favorite things, you know, the the northern lights, which we call the lights, the stars, and then the, just the amazing light. I, I am a fan of low angle light. Yeah. Yeah. Donna, I'm so glad that you talked about the bus tour because 
when I am helping people plan their trips or they're asking me questions, people so often complain about the bus and they're like, I don't want to take the bus or whatever. And But it's so amazing for the reason that you said you could just get dropped off at all these amazing places and be just out there. So I am so glad that you talked about that. Um, Tom, how about you? Do you have a favorite place in Denali? Well, I, I kind of second what Donna says. I, some of my best memories, I guess, is just to get out of the patrol car and take a hike up a, a drainage up into some place that hardly anybody ever goes and just sit and absorb the silence. Uh, it's an amazing place, and there aren't many places left anymore where you, where you have solitude and silence. It's hard to find, and you can do that yes. in Denali. And like she said, get off the bus, just say, hey, driver, let me off here. And you can go wherever you want, as long as you want, get back to the road and get on another bus. And you can go east or west. It's, it's the only way you can see the park, really. So I, I would just encourage people to do that. And it doesn't need to be a big, long hike. Just just like she says, get away, maybe so you can't see the road and see what you see. You know, you, you might see some wildlife. You'll see some flowers. You'll just you'll just experience solitude. And, you know, that's that's for the everyday people. But I, I got to say one of my favorite things, and it, it's nothing that the public could really do, was to spend time in the historic boundary patrol cabins and i had some really great experiences there with my comrades and traveling to get to them is not easy you got to do it with a dog team or a snow machine you can't really walk to them and uh but these are neat old cabins they're way back there and it's like it's like living back in the 1920s or the turn of the century but uh that's a, that's a different experience but uh just get off the bus, get out there, and uh, you won't be sorry. I know I mentioned that Jay and I met you while you were living in Denali. And specifically, we met because Donna and I went to grad school together. And Donna was already working as a school counselor, but I was learning to be a school counselor. And so that's how we got to know each other, which is pretty fun. So uh, Donna and Tom, we would love to start by hearing from you how you got to Alaska. So Tom, let's have you share first, and then Donna, you can add in your perspective. Well, I, I was working in uh, Glacier National Park um, after a stint in Yosemite. And in uh, 1990, a, a job announcement appeared uh, for uh, the North District Ranger position in Denali. And uh, I and Donna kind of always wanted to go to Alaska. We'd always talked about it. Uh, didn't know if we'd ever get a chance. But when this announcement came open, it was perfect for us because uh, Denali, unlike a lot of the Alaska parks, is on the road system. So you can actually drive to it. There was a, a good school nearby. And um uh, I was ready to move on from, from my glacier job, uh, a step up in responsibility. So I applied and I was fortunate enough to get selected for the job. Well, I'd add just a little bit about how we got there. We drove out of Glacier in the early, early morning 
uh, headed to Seattle and then on up to Bellingham to catch the ferry to Haines. And as we drove out of this, the temporary quarters, a couple of rangers went ahead and behind us with lights and sirens and escorted us to the park entrance out of the park. Uh, quite a send off. This you know, has since become a tradition, at least in Glacier. Uh, we drove over to uh, Seattle, spent a couple days there, and then went to Bellingham, got on the ferry, ended up in Haines, not entirely thinking about the difference between diesel fuel in the lower 48 and Alaska. When we got to Haines, it was in the low 40s, below zero. We began the next day to take our trip to, you know, to go to, I think we were headed to stay in Toke. Well, around Kluwani Wilderness, the diesel car engine would not run because the diesel gelled. Tom towed me to a, a lodge where there was a gas station. They drained the tank, filled it up with Arctic diesel, and the next day we were on our way to Toke. Uh, so it was an adventure from day one in Alaska. <laughs> yeah. this, this was in December, and I don't recommend anybody moving to Alaska in December, uh, <laughs> we, we did get stranded and it was 50 below zero. And that's why our diesel fuel froze. I stupidly didn't think about getting winterized diesel in Billingham, but we made it and uh, it was quite an adventure. You know, it's funny that we, um, there's an upcoming episode that we just did uh, the interview for a couple of days ago uh, with a friend of Jenny's called Scott McMurrin, who runs the, um, the Alaska travel gram and some other stuff. And he's a ADN uh, travel writer. Anyway, he were, he said that everyone he knows in Alaska remembers the day they arrived in Alaska, like the actual day. And I, I think Donna just proved that true. I mean, I do too, but mine wasn't as dramatic as that. Although I will say that. Well, I did actually, we, Go ahead, Tom. we actually got off the ferry uh, just just to, for a brief stop on our first, we first set foot on Alaska soil in Ketchikan. And uh, it was a momentous occasion because we, it was the first time we actually set foot on Alaska soil. So uh, that was pretty neat. Yeah. I remember that like when I crossed the border at Beaver Creek, you know, and I got out at the gas station at the, <laughs> at the um, on the other side of the border. And I remember just being like, I'm in Alaska. Like, this is the real deal. I mean, on that note, I remember when I arrived and I was going to the University of Alaska and I remember I crossed the border and I thought, oh, I'm there. I'm almost to Fairbanks. And then it was <laughs> not. <laughs> so yeah, I think two days know, everyone later, <laughs> everyone talks about Alaska's scale and how hard it is to get your head around. And I had the opportunity to work in a couple of Alaska national parks. And I remember that people, I'm not sure people can easily comprehend how large Alaska national parks are. Can you help us understand a bit just the sheer size of Denali? Yeah, well, you're right. It is it is hard. Even having worked there, it was I never could really wrap my head around the size of it. But but just to give you some facts and figures, there are eight actual national parks in Alaska. And in total that comprises 41.4 million acres or the size of Wisconsin. Um, Denali is the third largest, and it is 6.4 million acres, which happens to be the size of New Hampshire. So uh, 
Yellowstone, by comparison, is 2 million acres. My district, I was the North District Ranger, and there's a two districts, North and South. My district was a little over 4 million acres or twice the size of Yellowstone. And we had five rangers to manage that piece of land. It's, it's 600 miles around the boundary of Denali. There are 18,000 miles of rivers and 12,000 lakes and ponds and 1,400 square miles of glaciers. Now, there's a glacier in my district, the Muldrow, which is the largest glacier on the north side of the Alaska Range. This glacier is 34 miles long. So if you can picture a place in your hometown and go 34 miles away, if you can picture a river of ice 34 miles long, that might give you a little bit of the scale. And, and besides a giant park, there's only 35 miles of maintained trail and one road, which is 92 miles long. Most of that is dirt. So that might give you a little bit of an idea how big the place is. It's pretty mind-blowing to me, just having grown up in Yellowstone and the enormous staff there is, and still how empty it is, feeling in Yellowstone, and then compare that that your district was bigger than that. That's crazy. So Donna, um, I know Tom spent a lot of time in the backcountry in this vast park that we were just talking about. And when I met you... Your daughters, Kelly and Katie, were already in college and graduated from college, but they were much younger, I know, when you moved there. So tell us a little bit about what it was like to raise kids in Denali and how old Kelly and Katie were when you first arrived. When we uh, moved to Denali, they were 11 and 8. They were in sixth grade and third grade. Uh, they jumped right into school right away. It was two weeks before Christmas break. And at the end of that second week when break was coming up, uh, I talked to their teachers just to see how they were doing. And I, I think that I may have spoken about this in classes at the university, but the teachers were so compassionate. Uh, we knew the school was very highly rated. Uh, and these teachers are among the top 1% of those folks that I've taught with. Uh, they asked how the kids were, I asked how the kids were fitting in, but they asked how I was doing because they knew enough about the park service to know how hard it can be on the whole family mm. when you move. And I, I immediately thought, you know, Alaskans are friendly and helpful. Uh, so that, that was pretty special. You know, they finished their high school years, middle school and high school years, uh, and then when they graduated and went to college, they came home in the summers to work uh, for the Park Service or the Natural History Association at the time. Uh, after graduating from Whitworth College, Kelly taught for three years in Cake, Alaska, and that's a Clinkett village on Kupernoff Island uh, in Southeast. Uh, when we moved back to Montana, uh, Kelly stayed in Denali for a year and a half uh, to work in the park when Kelly grad or Katie graduated from Whitworth as well. She did not come home that summer and she went straight into graduate school. Uh, the other part of with Tom in the backcountry, first in, in in Yosemite and then all of his work out in the in the heart of Denali, uh, 
all the things that he had to do with law enforcement, emergency medicine, fire suppression, wildlife management, there were night shifts, there were call outs at night. Sometimes he wouldn't come home until the wee hours. There was one incident where he left at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock and didn't come home until after dinner the next day. Uh, so, you know, I've, I've never been afraid. I'm really pretty self-sufficient. Uh, having a phone and an emergency phone and a park radio in our home helped me to keep tabs on him. It was like spying. Uh, <laughs> you know, in, in Yosemite, we did not have a phone our first two summers. We spent seven summers in Tuolumne Meadows, and the first two of those, we didn't have a phone, but our, our quarters was a tent on a frame, so I just had to yell if I needed anything. Uh, one of the things we found that our, our home and our house was often a, a gathering place for rangers and families, especially during bad weather or during an incident. They would come to our house to get warm, get coffee, get cookies, uh, and it was it was always nice to to know what was going on, but it was also nice to you know just some, help somebody get warmed up when when they're working really really hard to help somebody. There was a time when Tom was called out to a fire, and the dispatcher wasn't full time, and so I used the park radio and I helped coordinate activities between the local volunteer fire company and the park fire brigade. Uh, so when you ask what I did in, in the time holding down the fort, those were some of the things that I did. Uh, yeah. Another part about moving from Denali or any life in the parks, when Kelly went to college, she felt like a hick. Everybody had been in cities and towns and had all of these urban experiences. But the more she talked with the other the others about where she lived and what she'd done, she realized how special her life was. And so the first time she had a dawning that I have grown up in national parks. And for her, it was an epiphany. Uh, and it's it just, we're so glad to have been able to give our girls that legacy and then to see how they responded to that environment, becoming consummate outdoors women. Uh, they were very independent and social at early ages, I think because all of the adults that came through our house. Uh, I think their initial discomfort in going off to the big city of Spokane to college, it's like the visitor who comes to Denali, it's almost too much to take in. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I had that experience too, just growing up in the parks. And, you know, one thing actually, Donna, that you mentioned that I think is, I didn't realize until, you know, a lot, later was that um when i've run into people who work in like law enforcement and and first responders outside of the national park service i don't think i think it's harder I, the park service is 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 more of a family affair you know like I, I remember that i got pulled over in high school for speeding and um by the time i got home you know my parents knew because they'd been on the park radio <laughs> <laughs> and that was a downside. But the good side of it was that we were kind of more all in it together in a way. You know, like you talked about, like when something was going on on the radio, people would, like people who were in the in the, the employee village would would get together and make make a meal for the folks who were going to be out late and that kind of stuff. And I don't think that's always true. You know, if you're a policeman, you go back to your, you know, suburban neighborhood. It, it's really different, I think, in the park service. And that, that's a really cool and unusual and not, I think, maybe what I would have expected from outside. I thought it would be more about solitude and whatever, but it's a pretty tight-knit place. 
uh, the NPOs. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I would agree. It's a kind of a unique situation because you work with people all day long, and then you go home and you all live together. In in a lot of cases, in a lot of the big Western parks, you all live in the same community. So, and essentially, you're you're with these people twenty four seven. So for better you or worse. work with them, and then yeah, for better or worse, and and that's good and bad. But it is a kind of a unique situation. It's not like a regular job where you commute to work and then you come home to a different house and have your own life. It's life goes on twenty four seven at a park, and you're there, and whatever happens happens. <laughs> I was just say there's such a sense of family, and whenever a new employee would come to Denali, uh, Sandy Kogel, a ranger who preceded us there, uh, started the tradition. But we would put a couple of meals in their freezer, so when they got there, they had something to eat right away. That's awesome, and, and that's that's the family that 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 we sort of nurtured, uh, and it served us very well. So, Tom, one of the really unique things about Denali National Park is the sled dogs who help rangers with their work in the winter. And by the way, if you're listening, you can see the sled dogs do a demonstration in the summer, and I would highly recommend that. That's a really cool thing in Denali. But, Tom, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what it's like to work with a dog team. Well, it's it's definitely a unique thing. Um, first of all, there's been a, a, a kennels operation in Denali since 1929. And rangers have used dogs on patrol to, to the interior of the park ever since. Back in the 30s and 40s, uh, rangers were sent out to spend the whole winter in remote cabins located along the boundary. And each ranger had a team of dogs, and he would use those dogs to patrol the boundary and, and, and do work. Today, we still have a kennels. There are about 30 dogs, and um, we use the dogs to patrol the wilderness where you can't take a snow machine. Uh, we, we check on conditions. We, we haul freight and supplies in the remote cabins, haul things out. They're just, they're workhorses. They're working dogs. These are not the dogs that you see on the Iditarod. They're not race dogs. They're big, uh, muscular dogs. And um, the dogs go, they use, for patrol, they make about 3,000 miles a, a winter on patrol and hauling freight. Now, for me, I... <laughs> Well, for most people, it's it's a totally new thing to to drive a dog team. I, I mean, it's a learning learning experience. I, I had experience riding horses and packing mules in my other parks, but uh, running a dog team is a whole nother ball game. For one thing, you don't you don't have any physical control over a dog. On a horse, you have reins and you can steer them. A dog team is simply you're on the back of the sled and they're out there and they listen to your verbal commands, hopefully G and haw and whoa. So, <laughs> you know, it's it, hopefully they stop, but right? um, it, 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 it's a unique experience. And I, I, I quickly learned that you better be in pretty good shape because it's not, it's not like in the movies where you sit on the back of the sled and just glide over the snow. It's not like that at all. 
there's a lot of running and pushing the sled. Sometimes you, in deep snow, you have to get out and snowshoe a trail ahead of them. Uh, a lot of shoving and um, sometimes cussing. And uh, just it's just a unique way to travel. If you ever get the experience, the chance, it's, it's something I recommend. But uh, I, there are very few rangers that have done it. And I'm, I'm really happy that I'm a, in a small group of people that have used a dog team to get around a park. And to my knowledge, Denali is the only park in the, in the whole system that has a, a kennels operation. Yeah, it's a really, really unique and cool thing about Denali. And Donna, I know you had told me that Kelly and Katie got to do some volunteer work with the puppies. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, each each year, if there was a litter of puppies, they would volunteer to socialize and basically train simple commands one of the puppies. Uh, their first was Shannon, I think that she was their favorite and they walked her two or three times a day, uh, got her to sit. One of the main things was that she would learn her name and be comfortable around all kinds of people wanting to pet her and, or any of the puppies. And then there were basic commands, sit, stay, uh, things like that. Uh, at one point Kelly was working and Katie was bored silly at home. And so she went up to the kennels and, said, how about if I did the book sales at the three demonstrations, and then you wouldn't have to bring somebody up from the visitor center three times a day. And they hired her, you know, the big brown eyes. That's and awesome. So she went and did those those book sales. Uh, but the one thing I wanted to say is the dog demonstrations are are one of the must-see attractions, if you want to call it that, in Denali. You get a, a real good sense of a working kennels, not just a dog and a dogs and sled, uh, but what the kennels work is all about. Uh, the other, their, their park service careers included working at the visitor center and at the Savage Check Station, which is at the end of the paved road, after which you either have to ride a bus or have a, a permit if you're staying at lodging. And when they boarded each bus, their supervisors have told us that they treated each bus of visitors like the only people they had to talk to all day. They could answer questions about the park in great detail and accuracy because they had experienced the park by getting out into it. Um, so yeah. it, was, it was good for them, and I, I believe they were good for the park. Oh, that's awesome. That's really that, cool. That's a great summer job, that is for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I had the opportunity to work in the visitor center in Mammoth uh, when I was in high school. And, and it was always funny, you know, I always felt a little awkward giving advice to people who were quite a bit older than I was, but, you know, I, I had this like unique opportunity to grow up there and it was kind of cool to have expertise at that age to, to know something that someone else doesn't. It's kind of unusual. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny that, that dog, the, I think, Tom is underselling. Well, he's he's in his typical <laughs> fashion underselling how hard it is to run a dog. I I dated a dog musher briefly, and um, I went ski drawing once with part of her, and and her dogs were all trained in German. And um, I'll just say because she was competitive, and so you know it, you don't want it, your team to respond to someone else's commands off the starting line, and I 
could not get my accent correct to stop the dog. And I think it dragged me down. (laughs) (laughs) That's the one thing you learn. Never, never let go of the sled. Ever. Because they'll keep going. They won't stop. No, they are powerful and they love to run. And uh, it's, it's very physical. Yeah. I mean, and, and the dogs have, I mean, Yellowstone had mule teams and I remember a, a new HR person once saying like, oh my gosh, look at this. They still have, there's this like old relic on the, the, the job list of a, of a mule hostler. And I'm like, it's not a relic. <laughs> That's, we still have mule hostlers, but um, it's, it's uh, I think dogs are a whole nother level. You, you don't, like you say, you don't physically guide them at all. You have to negotiate with them with like, negotiating with Italian traffic on the streets of Rome. Like it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a very, uh, wild <laughs> yeah, they all have their own personality and you kind of get to, to know what each dog is capable of. And, you know, some are very forgiving and some, some are not. And it's just, it's just a unique thing. And, uh, I, you know, I made, I made some, some long trips, some four day four day journeys from Wonder Lake back to headquarters. Probably one of the neatest things I did the whole time I was there. And we stayed in cabins at night, and uh, you know we travel thirty miles a day on on a dog team. It, and it's it's really cool. You know that I know that you know the park police, which is a division of the Park Service in D.C. Uh, mostly, they they have an equestrian school, and but I mean, how did you? Did you go to some kind of official NPS training for dog teams? Or? Actually, I, I did. Oh, not not to the dog team, but I went to uh, Yosemite has a a horse school every two years for uh, mounted okay. mounted rangers, and I I went through that training. But no, I no, there's no school on dog teams. <laughs> In fact, it, it, there's only you, you talked about a, a, a hostler, but. Denali has the distinction of being the only park that I know of that has a kennels manager job position. It's full-time, full-time permanent kennels manager. And it was Gary Coy at the time. And, you know, you just learn by doing it. You just, you just get on and you follow what, do what Gary says and hang on for dear life. Because when they take off, it's like shot out of a rocket and they settle down, but, it's it's pretty much on the job training. <laughs> yeah, I, bet. I bet. Well, Donna was telling us about how uh, you know your your induction into Alaska winter, and I'll say you know you guys coming from Montana, it's not like you were new to winter. Glacier's a cold park. Oh no! But uh, but Alaska's kind of on another another level. Uh, you know, tell us more about what it was like to winter in Denali. Was it? I mean, I assume the park is pretty quiet in the winter time is that true yeah it's it's definitely a quiet time uh you know everybody asks about winter when they hear about alaska a lot of visitors most of them are there in the summer and and one of the the big questions is what's it like here in the winter and i always just like to cut to the chase and say cold and dark but uh yeah, that's pretty you much know it, that's yeah, accurate that Cold, it's cold and dark, and uh, you know there's a lot of misconception about the the darkness thing. You know, people think there's no light, and 
and all that. Well, maybe above the Arctic Circle, it's more like that. But where we were, just south of Fairbanks, we I would describe it as uh, a twilight light during midday. Where we were, because of the mountains, we never actually saw the, the ball of the sun during the day. It never got high enough above the ridge to see the, the actual sun. So we were always based in a, a beautiful, low, peach-colored light. And in, in December, in Denali, at that latitude, sunrise is around 10 a.m. And sunset is around 3. So you got about five hours of true sun daylight, and then it, you know, it gets, it gets dark. And... Um, the winters are long, and there's no there's no getting around it. it. It gets cold and starts snowing in September, and the snow lingers into May. And we happen to be there for the all-time record low in uh, February 5th, 1999, at Park headquarters. It got to minus 54. Now, that's not wind chill. That's just dead air. So uh, I'm kind of proud that I was there there for the record. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, you know, often it's... That day myself, we were in Fairbanks. Yeah. Yeah, everybody was up there remembers it because it was, it was epic. But, you know, a typical day in the winter is, you know, I don't know, it sounds really cold to a lot of people. Minus 20 and 30 was kind of, yeah, that's a normal day. And... And it, that would go on for weeks. It's not just a, a one or two day thing. It'd go on for weeks. And, you know, if it would warm up to 10 below or something, it was like springtime. In fact, we would open the doors in our office because it was getting too warm inside. So, you know, climate is changing in Alaska and the, the winters have moderated quite a bit, I believe. So, but uh, you have to, you have to adapt to the cold. I know, uh, Cars, you know, vehicles all have plug-ins to block heaters to plug in. And you go to town like Fairbanks, uh, just about everywhere there are these electrical boxes where you can plug in your car and keep your car warm. Um, I know shopping, we had to be careful because we had a long drive home. was 130 miles to go grocery shopping one way. So in that kind of cold, we would... Uh, we would actually put our our produce, our vegetables, in a in an ice chest with hot packs to keep it freezing. Um, you know, if you want to buy ice cream, you just throw it in the back of the truck, and it's hard as a rock when you get home. So things break easily. Fan belts break. Glass shatters. You got to dress in layers. Um, you can't have exposed skin very long in that kind of weather. You got to be really careful. So yeah, it, I, it, it's, it's a different world. I used to, I, in 99, actually, the year you were, you mentioned there, I was working for a car manufacturer running a cold weather test facility in Fairbanks. And it was, uh, you know, I was, I would have these visitors from Germany who would come in and I always tell them like, I act as if you're on the surface of the moon, move slowly. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't pick up a sweat. Yeah. Don't have any exposed skin. You know, and and they would want to like dash out to do something. I'm like, no, <laughs> you can't, you can't do that. And if a car, you know, runs off the road, don't try to walk. Uh, you know, 
for help, call for help. If you can, you know, that kind of stuff, just cause it's, it's really unusual that 40, 50 below zero temperature is, uh, the, the, the physics. Well, to kind of- it can be, it, it, it can be life-threatening. I mean, seriously, you can, you can die in 20, 30 minutes <laughs> of exposure if, if you're out there. Yeah. And I imagine, you know, for folks who work alone, like park rangers, uh, you know, you just got to like, I imagine there's another level of, of just being careful in your head all the time uh, in those kind of situations. Yeah. You, yeah. You got to, like you say, you got to plan, plan well. And, you know, at, at those kind of temperatures, we, we really didn't do a whole lot because it was too dangerous. We didn't run dogs. It's hard on the dogs. For one oh, yeah. thing, at forty below, we, we didn't fly. We didn't fly if we had to. Our you know park has two aircraft, and uh, at those temperatures, it's it's dangerous to fly because things break, carburetors clean, uh, ice up, etc. So things kind of go in a in a slower pace. And you know when it got really cold, people didn't have to come to work that lived outside of the park. They were just told to stay home. But the rangers always we lived there and you know there was a shortened staff when it was really cold we had to take care of the dogs the dogs have to be fed every day just like livestock and we'd pick up the mail and uh, pretty much hunker down in a warm office if we could Mm -hmm. you know it's funny that jenny and i were living in a in a cabin uh with no running water and, and we had to go get our water uh, from town, we'd drive in at the truck and, and pick up jugs of water. And I remember that we had to do that during that phase and, uh, five gallon, well, six gallon jugs, uh, uh, they froze on the 15 minute drive, you know, back to the house. But it was like, all we did during that, that real cold spell was just, just the minimum, you know, like whatever you have to do to get through. I mean, I kind of enjoyed that about winter in a way. It, it leads to this sort of uh, insular feeling. It's a, it's there's nothing. It's not like a, I don't know. There's just nothing like it in in lower forty eight life that I've experienced where there's everything just gets kind of. Uh, I, I felt the same. I felt the same way. Like I, I was living on an island, yeah, insulated yeah. from the rest of the world, and, and nobody else was really experiencing this. And you can't really describe it to people without going through it but you're right you feel like you're in this little globe and you better be careful and you better pray that the heat doesn't go off and the pipes don't break <laughs> did you guys have northern did you, were you able to see northern lights down there or did, did the, oh the every, every night okay. every night yeah pretty much yeah. yeah well you were on the north side of the park too so yeah well, oh I mean, yeah, direct overhead there. Like, so no matter where you are. Well, and I would add that you know, being the optimist in the family, uh, the good side of all the darkness were the frequent displays of the northern lights and amazing stargazing. I mean, you could see all of the stars in their brilliance. Uh, we were out one evening when there was an eclipse, a comet, and the northern lights, and it was like the trifecta of astronomy, I guess. Wow. The other thing about the winter that, you know, when you go to town, it was an all day affair about every three or four weeks for us, we'd get our hair cut, see the doctor, whatever we needed to get groceries. Uh, and I'd like Tom said, it's 130 miles each way. Uh, 
the other thing that happened in the real cold is the tires on vehicles get flat where they're on the ground. And they just flatten out a little bit overnight. And the car seats are just hard as a rock. And so you get in to this cold rock and you sit on it, you start your car, and then you drive and you're going down the road. Just, you know, there was always something to smile about. One thing I was really careful about, though, was I walked to my office probably 100 yards, maybe 150 yards. But I would talk out loud because you had the rare chance of running into a moose, which I did not once, but twice. Uh, I would just talk out loud. I always took a flashlight. So, Yeah. We had a moose that liked to sit on the trail between our cabin and our and our outhouse. Because, the you know, I, oh, I kept... Geez. So we would always be like, you always check with the flashlight and carry the bear spray in case uh, she moved in while you were in the outhouse. You know, <laughs> yeah. Oh, geez. Yeah. Well, Tom, uh, I feel like we, we, I don't want to spoil, you know, any of the book for you, but there's more than enough in that book that um, I don't have any worry about, about stealing any of the content. But I feel like we should let you tease it a bit. Can you give us a quick idea of, of a particular, you know, as a ranger, you, you I'm going to say that you are from the golden age of the National Park Ranger, of uh, wore all the hats, did all the jobs. I think the Park Service is growing more and more specialized, uh, you know, into, into law enforcement and maintenance folks and that kind of stuff. That, uh, increasingly, you don't have as much crossover between and i was always really impressed with the breadth of your career however i know you had a lot of emergency response experiences that i've heard you tell me in person and also i some of them i i read in the book is there one you'd like to share with us um uh, search and rescue or wilderness medicine response that you could tease the book a bit with oh i'm always out to plug my book but uh uh, you know, there's a whole chapter in the book about it's called the, the evolution of a medic, and it 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 kind of chronicles how I how I uh, got training and grew. You know, I started out as a first aider, became an EMT, and uh, and then there was a program called the Park Medic Program while I was in Yosemite and. I participated in that and it, it's basically a, a paramedic school. And so I became a park medic and uh, that's advanced life support, um, advanced cardiac care, uh, IV fluid therapy, what have you. So having gotten to that stage, I often was the person who got called into a lot of serious situations where people were in, in bad situations, hurt and whatever. And as kind of the senior, senior medical person in Denali, um, it was often up to me to, to lead whatever was going on as far as somebody got hurt or whatever not not on the mountain the the mountain is a whole different ball game and and that's that's handled completely out of Talkeetna but but one incident that I, that's in the book actually but there was a two two russian climbers uh in July of 19 
97, they did a, a traverse, which means they started on the south side uh, from, from the Cahiltna base camp and uh, summited the mountain. It took about three weeks to do the traverse. So they, they summited and then they, they made their way down to the north side. And that's called a traverse. And not many people do that. It's quite a feat to be able to do that. And they got, they got down off the mountain and, and you get down into the, the lowlands where it's green again. And they had one more obstacle in their path, and that was to cross the McKinley River, which is near Wonder Lake, and it's within sight of the road. And so the two Russians got to the river, and the river was running really high with glacial runoff, very cold, swift water. So they both had all their climbing gear, their, their heavy packs, skis, you know, the whole nine yards, and they, they attempted to cross the river. Well, one of them fell in and was swept downstream. I mean, he just got swept off his feet and down he went. His partner dumped his pack and ran after him. And the the guy that fell in kind of washed up on a gravel bar and he was face down in the water and his partner got to him and dragged him, dragged him up onto dry land in the middle of the river. There's water on both sides and it's a braided, braided river. And the partner, he tried CPR, and you know, it looked it, it looked pretty bad, and it was. So after trying CPR for I don't know how many minutes, he knew he was near the road, so he ran. This guy ran three miles up to the road for help, and he flagged down a bus driver who got on the radio and said, "Hey, we need a ranger. There's been an, an accident out on the McKinley River." I got the. I was in headquarters, so I got a radio call. And um, long story short, flew out there in a helicopter. That's about a forty-five minute flight. It's ninety miles from headquarters out to that area. And uh, me and another person, we landed right on the river bar, right near the victim. And uh, by that time, two more rangers from the Wonder Lake area had gotten there, and they were doing CPR. So when I got a helicopter, I, I saw what was going on, and it didn't look good. And I knew this guy had been in the water, and CPR that long, just it's not going to happen. But anyway, I put on the heart monitor, and there was no electrical activity, no pulse, pupils fixed. So I made a, a radio phone patch call to the Fairbanks Memorial Hospital and uh, spoke to the ER doc and described the situation. I said, this guy... This guy went down over an hour ago. They've been doing CPR for over an hour. We're in the middle of a river. You know, we, we can't really do a whole lot here. And so I described all the, the, the symptoms and signs, and he made the call that the, the guy was, was dead. So, you know, it's just one of those things, and it's a tragedy. And, and that, that's one of many, many incidents I had to do. But beyond that you know there's more to the story and you know he was a russian national so that kind of complicates thing you have this this body and how do you get this body back to russia and how do you notify the parents and so there's a whole story in the book i won't go into it here but there's more to this story and it's kind of funny actually but in a weird way but that's just one incident the international component is always like i 
that blows my mind just and and you know again like i said you're golden age of ranger where you're dealing with a lot of things that like i think in a you know in a city people would there would be specialists in every in every single thing that you had to, to you're, work on. you're absolutely right and and, and i i agree with you 100 it was the golden age of rangering because back then we did everything you wore a lot of hats you're a firefighter you're a, a medic you were a police officer you did search and rescue you you packed horses and mules uh you did snow surveys now in today's world of rangers it's a lot of specialization and people don't get they don't get to do everything that I did. And, you know, I'm, I'm really fortunate that I got to, to, to be in the park service at that time when we got to, to do a lot of things. Well, I'm going to say, if you have found anything that Tom has mentioned interesting in the slightest, I really recommend the book. It is chock full of interesting, um, realistic portrayals of life in the and not just in denali in in your time in yosemite glacier anyway it's a superb read i agree well, thanks <laughs> uh we're gonna take a short break and when we come back we are gonna ask donna and tom to share some of their favorite places in denali Are you feeling overwhelmed planning your trip to Alaska? You're not alone. Hey, it's Jenny from Alaska Uncovered. Did you know that I help people plan their trips to Alaska? My superpower is asking the right questions to craft the perfect itinerary for you and your travel crew. From cruises to cruise and land trip combos to Alaska railroad packages, to making up an itinerary completely unique to you wherever you and your people want to go. Let me plan and book your dream trip for you. There's no additional fee to work with me as your professional travel agent and book your trip for you. If you love trip planning and want to do it on your own, I also offer individual trip planning sessions for a small fee to point you in the right direction. Don't get overwhelmed. Let me make all your Alaska dreams come true. You can email me at jen at topleffttravel.com or follow the link in the show notes to get a quote for your trip or to book a planning session. And we are back with Tom and Donna Habacker. We are talking about their life living in Denali National Park for the 15 years that Tom was a ranger there. So what were some places in the park that Kelly and Katie loved the most that you remember? Donna, let's start with you then, Tom. Well, you know, early on, they were they were pretty young. They were 11 and 8. Uh, they would play, <clears throat> excuse me, down at Rock Creek. And it runs right behind the headquarters area between there and down towards um, the visitor center. It's east of headquarters. And they'd go down there a lot of days in the summertime. One time they built a dam big enough to float a two-person raft. So you get an idea of what they were doing. And they would That's play awesome. Frisbee golf around head. They'd play Frisbee golf around headquarters and they would be, you know, they'd cover acres of ground using the flagpole or the superintendent's house or the kennels as the, the holes. Uh, they came in one evening and said they'd seen fresh bear scat. And we asked them how fresh. And they said, it was still steaming. 
<laughs> oh God. You know. Yeah. When they when they outgrew playing at the creek and frisbee, they began hiking and backpacking. Uh, several solo adventures. And I, I texted them the other day and said, Hey, give me some ideas. What what do you what do you guys think about what was your favorite places? And their first recommendation, both of them, get off the bus. Even if you never leave the road, take in the sights, the sounds, and the smells, and the profound quiet. So without us cueing them, they believe the same things that we do is get out there. You yeah. know, you don't need a big hike. Get down in your belly and smell the flowers. Uh, the tundra has a smell all its own. Uh, it does. Kelly yeah. did want to relate their their. Their most memorable backcountry trip uh, certainly wasn't the best. There was a summer when Sable Pass wildlife closure was lifted, and it allowed for a shortcut, that's in quotation marks, to the top, almost the, the origin of the Teklanik River. And they could get up there, and when it was generally closed, the thing that made it memorable was 18 inches of snow when they woke up in the morning. And their stove would not light. So they cut their short, cut their trip short and they bushwhacked back to the road. And they had to go along a hillside that was just full of willows. And it's, and I've done this. Uh, you're not even walking on the ground. You're walking on the stalks of the willows. And sometimes you get in the dead bug position where you're on your back and your feet are sticking up because your pack is caught in the willows. When they got out, they said they were laughing so hard they were crying. Or maybe they were just crying. Uh, yeah, but they did catch both. that last bus in. Yeah. And Kelly also added that for her favorite places, a hiker never tells. Find your own favorites. And I agree. Oh, that's great advice, Kelly. <laughs> Love no, it. One of the things I'm taking from all three of your answers, uh, or all four of your answers, I guess, since you're speaking for them too. Yes. One of the things I think that, and as a photographer, I'm going to second what Donna said about the light in Denali and how amazing the photography is. But I think what you're all kind of describing is, you know, you, you can't get the sense of it from an Instagram post. And the most epic place is the one you actually go to. Like, Get out there and and immerse your all of your senses, not just uh, a, you know a quick snap with your phone or whatever, and like let it seep into you. That's what I'm hearing you all say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I I have memories of just walking up a, a drainage. I'd never been there, and just just sitting there, and all of a sudden, here comes you know a small herd of caribou just walking right in front of me, and I'm just sitting there quietly and. They looked at me and I looked at them and they went on about their business and I'll never forget that. It was so cool. Yeah, yeah totally. I, I feel so fortunate to have been a park archaeologist, you know, and have the opportunity to just spend weeks at a time off trails, and just, just looking. Really an incredible gift. Final question, Tom, we'll let you go first this time. So, I know that you traveled around Alaska quite a bit as a family, even outside of Denali. What's a favorite place or a favorite family memory you have of somewhere you went as a family in Alaska? Uh, as a family, we 
we try to see as much as the state as we could, given our the limited resources. You know, to see to see Alaska. Well, you have to you have to fly to see most of it. But as a family, we tried to make a, a trip every year, and we we did a long car trip. We we drove all the way to uh, Dead Horse on the the Pipeline Hall Road, and. Uh, nice. um, that that was a really special something I wanted to see, you know. We got over the the Brooks Range, which I'd always heard about the Brooks Range, and to go up and over Attigan Pass and then come out on the the coastal plain and and just see that, and and I don't know, it's just there's just nothing like it, and you know, there's caribou and bears, and we didn't see muskox, but but they're there. But just to see the scale of the landscape and knowing where we were geographically in the state and almost to the Arctic Ocean, and we did to drive all the way to Horse, and we, we got a really good look at the pipeline, and we, we camped along <laughs> yeah. it in a tent. And, uh, you know, it's just a unique thing to do. Yeah. So the girls, the girls really liked that, too. Cool. That is an awesome adventure for sure. Okay, Donna, we're giving you the last word. Do you have a favorite, a family memory of a trip that you took in Alaska? Well, it, along with the the pipeline trip, if you want to call it that, we did a loop trip that leaving from our place and went down to Wasilla, out to Glen Allen, uh, which is where uh, Rangel St. Elias National Park is headquartered. And I'll mention a couple of other park areas. Uh, we went to Kennecott National Historic Site. Uh, old mining site. We were at Eagle, which is where the headquarters for uh, Gates of the Arctic National Park is. And then we went on over to Dawson in the Yukon Territory and came back through Toke Delta back to Fairbanks, Alaska. And I think that was one of my favorites because the kids were at an age where everything was new and they wanted to know everything about everything. Uh, On our overnight in Kennecott, the water in our gallon jug formed an inch and a half of ice overnight. Uh, and there were three inches of frost on the ceilings of our tents. And when <laughs> Kelly comes out of her tent, she says, I told you it was going to be cold. Uh, you know, we, we've we been on almost all of the contiguous roads in Alaska, just about all of them, down to the Kenai Peninsula, uh, that top of the world highway from Dawson to Chicken, Alaska. It's just amazing. Uh, it's a great road. And it's a great road if you're coming from the lower 48, you can connect to that through the Yukon Territory. Uh, Most of the places that we went were off the beaten track where a lot of tourists don't go, but they're worth the effort. Uh, A lot of the big parks in Alaska have headquarters on the road system, but the parks are pretty much accessible only by air or in some places by boat. Uh, A great resource that you might mention to your folks is the milepost. roads coming into Alaska and all throughout Alaska, mile by mile by mile with what the attractions are, the lodging, where the gas stations are, and it's updated every year. So that was our Bible when we were driving around Alaska. One of the things that Tom and I got to do uh, that was pretty cool is we went to the McNeil River Sanctuary and observed the grizzlies feeding on salmon. We were there for four days We'd applied twice and were selected the second time, which I, I guess is pretty unheard of. Uh, and we were literally among the bears. They were behind us, in front of us, beside us. 
and they were feeding, nursing their young. They engaged with each other, kind of battled over the best fishing spot. And it was definitely, uh, I think, the singular opportunity for us in Alaska. There wasn't anything at all like that that we saw on any of our other trips. Sadly, yeah. the girls could not go along on that trip. Uh, the other thing that I would close out with is, you know, the best memories for us, not just in Denali, but in the parks where we were in Glacier and in Yosemite, are the friendships that each of us and all of us formed as as probably a result of our shared experiences and our shared hardships. And for us, there's not a family that's closer than our Park Service circle of friends. They've enriched us as much as the parks have. Uh, we're really fortunate to have called Alaska home, though, for almost 15 years. Thank you for sharing that, Donna. I just think that is so, so true and so beautiful. So thank you. And speaking of beautiful, I am just going to completely agree with you about Top of the World Highway. It's it's just such a beautiful place. <laughs> and about the Milepost, which yeah. is an amazing resource, especially in those places where you don't have cell service, which is a lot of the places that you yeah. just mentioned, <laughs> even in 2023. The Milepost, you know, is updated by some amazingly good-looking and intelligent human beings that um, may or may not include posts. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Jay, Jay and I are field editors for the Milepost. Oh, so really. We may be cool. a little well, biased. It, it, so don't leave home even, without it. I mean, I've yeah, I've told no, so many true. people if you're coming up here, get the milepost. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And we're definitely I, I do. doing that gig because we love the milepost, not the other way around. <laughs> yeah. And I believe that Chris Capps works for the news miner is also a contributor to the mile post yeah that might be are There's you familiar a... with chris chris caps no and we don't we don't necessarily know the other people who do it other than our editor of course um yeah so okay. there's a lot of people that do a few routes a year like we do well i want to just say thanks to your whole family for working both in front of and behind the scenes uh for our national parks absolutely and you know all of america benefits from the work of folks like you so really you know thanks from me and and on behalf of everyone else yeah here here and um you're welcome (laughs) thank you also to uh kelly and katie for contributing via text that was a fun little bonus there too Well, in addition to thanking you for your service um, to our country, to both of you, thank you also for sharing your story with us today and coming on the podcast. And for those of you out there listening, thank you for joining us and listening in. If you enjoyed this, we would invite you to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any new episodes which come out every Wednesday. Bye for now.